to me, this is such a great example of sort of how he warps um, the truth to suit his narrative, but also how almost nobody at Bridgewater rises to her defense in the years to come. Where were the people saying, Ray, you have to stop showing this tape. You have to, like, this is not right. Everyone knew she was pregnant, but nobody was, despite all of these so-called principles about trust and truth, nobody stood up and said, don't do this. Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Before we begin today's conversation, remember to keep two things in mind. All the discussion we'll have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their product before you make investment decisions. Here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup Larsen. For me, the best part of my podcasting journey has been the opportunity to speak to a huge range of extraordinary people from all around the world. In this series, I have invited one of them, namely Kevin Coldine, to host a series of in-depth conversations to help uncover and explain new ideas to make you a better investor. In the series, Kevin will be speaking to authors of new books and research papers to better understand the global economy and the dynamics that shape it so that we can all successfully navigate the challenges within it. And with that, please welcome Kevin Coldiron. All right. Uh, thanks, Niels. And welcome, everyone, to our last show of 2023, which I think is going to be a real treat. Um, our guest is Rob Copeland. He's a finance reporter for The New York Times and author of the best-selling new book, The Fund, Ray Dalio, Bridgewater Associates, and the Unraveling of a Wall Street Legend. Um, uh, to be honest, I kind of struggle to find the right adjectives to describe this book. Um, eye-opening for sure, um, even kind of mind-blowing in parts, but it's also deeply thought-provoking because it forces us to confront um, you know, deeper ideas of truth and transparency. Are they universally good? Can they even be properly, can they even properly exist in a situation where there's deep imbalances of power? Um, questions like that. But even if you're not interested in those deeper questions, it's a book that's filled with uh, fascinating anecdotes and gives us a real look inside a, a kind of secret world. So um, Rob, thanks for joining us and uh, welcome to the show. Thank you. So this is a book about Bridgewater Associates and its founder, Ray Dalio. Many of our uh, listeners are finance people, so they know Bridgewater, they know Ray Dalio. But um, for those of listeners who, that, that don't know them, I was wondering if you could kind of give us a quick summary of Bridgewater as a company um, and the philosophy that its founder, Ray Dalio, um, used to run the firm. Sure. So... First of all, I would say there's there's two versions of of this story. There's the story that that Ray Dalio tells, which is that he built the world's largest hedge fund, Bridgewater Associates, um, in large part due to his philosophy, these so-called principles, um, which basically involve um, a long study of history and arguing with one another to get the uh, to to find what he would call the truth. 
Um, and the big reveal for me, and you know, been this project, this book took the better part of ten years, is that Ray Dalio was already a billionaire. He, he was already incredibly wealthy before he invents the term principles out of thin air in, in around two thousand five. So what the principles are really are in an effort by Ray to retrofit a sort of overarching philosophical reason for his success when there's absolutely no hard evidence that um, that any sure. You talked about this being a, a 10 year long project. Um, can you maybe go into a little bit of your history with Bridgewater? I mean, you, you don't play a prominent role yourself in the book, but you are in there because you've been reporting on uh, Bridgewater for a long time before the New York times, you were at the wall street journal where you were the hedge fund beat reporter and you became well known for a number of kind of front page stories about Bridgewater. So could you kind of tell us how you first got introduced to the firm and then how that led to your interaction with Ray Dalio and then, then, you know, eventually the book. Well, well-known is a lot. I appreciate that. Um, I think, uh, well-known among my, my four siblings and my parents for sure, as the only, as the only kid in the family to write for the wall street journal and the New York times. The, um, I actually used to write for a trade publication called absolute return, which covered the hedge fund industry. Um, so I, I, I knew Bridgewater and Ray Dalio because it was the world's biggest and that was our entire world. Um, I started writing about Bridgewater um, in actually 2015. Uh, Ray puts out what he calls these daily observations, these these macroeconomic notes that I'm sure some of your listeners even receive now. And we very rarely wrote about them, but it, it piqued my interest one day. Someone sent me one and he had sort of flipped his view on China. Um, he had gone from bullish to uh, to fairly bearish on, on China. And we wrote that up and, you know, Ray hit the roof. Um, and he called me and he was basically trying to walk back everything that he had actually written in his own words. And, you know, it wasn't a turnoff for me. It was, it was sort of like addicting, you know, you get the world's biggest hedge fund manager and he's on the phone and he seems to be listening to your perspective. And, you know, he's agitated, but as a journalist, sometimes people are agitated by, by your, by your work. Um, and then over the years, I, I kept writing about Ray uh, and Bridgewater because the chasm between the Ray Dalio that he was playing on TV and in TED Talks and in his books was so different from what I was hearing from people inside Bridgewater about the way he he acts. Now, just like Ray Dalio sort of retrofitted the principles um, to explain his success, he has also retrofitted a, like a personal animus of, of my own, which is that... Um, I'm, I'm 36, and uh, when I was 23, uh, I, I didn't have a job that I liked, and I applied to basically every job in the New York tri-state area, among them Bridgewater Associates. Um, so to hear Ray Dalio tell it, I am like an aggrieved job applicant um, who has been on what would have to be just an, an absolutely incredible revenge tour um, of 15 years. Um, but I can just say that it's just a complete distraction. Ray universally dislikes independent um, thought against, particularly by journalists, um, that just say that the true facts of, of what he's like behind the scenes. So, you know, he, he attacks me, he attacks other reporters. To me, it's, it's not that interesting, to be honest. There's a lot of successful business figures who like to make the media a foil. And um, I, I don't have any, any personal, honestly, feelings at all about Ray, besides that he's a wonderful, newsworthy topic for book. You, so you were writing these articles about Bridgewater, um, 
At what stage did you think, okay, there's more here. There's enough that I can kind of turn this into, into, into a book. At every stage. And the thing about Ray is, is it's so wild. It's so different from any other Wall Street firm. Um, at one point, he writes his own book in 2017 called Principles, Life, and Work. Um, and it, though, though it's, it's in the nonfiction section in many bookstores, um, it really is fiction. And that was the moment when I realized that um, if I didn't do it, if I didn't use my ability to talk to hundreds of people inside Bridgewater, that he was going to, frankly, get away with um, painting this, this completely up is down, right is wrong version of himself. Um, he made it easier on me in many ways because he spent so much money becoming famous um, and you know, being interviewed by Gwyneth Paltrow and being on every major news network. Every single time he became more and more famous, to me it felt like more and more of an imperative for you know, an independent journalist to actually tell the truth. You must be a pretty determined guy because, you know, you say in the book that Bridgewater hired not one, but not two, but three different firms to, <laughs> how do I say, aggressively dissuade you from write, writing the book to... Uh, well, you can say you know, they, they threatened a multi-billion dollar lawsuit. That's a fact. So, you know, how did that feel? That must have felt kind of scary. I mean, your publisher um, must also be quite, <laughs> quite determined. Um, how did you you know, how did you kind of personally react to that? Well, I knew he wouldn't be thrilled with the book. I, I, he is actually the first person I told as I signed the book deal. I didn't want this to be something where I was slinking around in the corners. And, and one of Ray's principles is trust in truth. So a part of me actually thought that maybe he might actually uh, have a small part of himself that was curious what, what the execution of trust in truth is actually like. Um, I will say when they threatened me with all those lawyers, all this, this multi-billion dollar lawsuit, it's, it's almost a joke to me because you could threaten me with a multi-million dollar lawsuit. It would have the same effect. You know, I'm not, uh, that would bankrupt me either way. Uh, and not to be jingoistic, but you know, in the United States of America, we have pretty good protections for, for journalists. And I had seen, I had many stories of Ray threatening his own staff, um, being cruel to his own family. Um, so to me, the way that he wielded his fortune to try to, to squash this book is really not that different from what he's done um, for decades uh, behind the scenes to people who he has an actual personal relationship with. So let's maybe dig into it a little bit. You, you started with the story of uh, Paul McDowell, who is a, um, a consultant that was brought in to develop the internal software that Bridgewater uses to rank and give um, feedback to employees. And eventually, um, this kind of technology became baseball cards, kind of like each person carried around this card that, um, you know, included their their rankings, et cetera. Um, but can you kind of explain how the baseball cards worked, what the logic was uh, behind them? So at Bridgewater, uh, Ray comes up with this sort of uh, never-ending collection of personality categories to rate each other on. So they can be things as simple as, you know, your ability to listen, um, and they, they can be things as complicated as, you know, breaking through to the truth, and these other sort of nebulous um, categories. And his, 
His grand goal, um, as he said so many times, was to be able to rank everyone at Bridgewater on what is functionally a single scale so that, you know, if if you and I were talking, that um, we would be able to f- look at a metric and say that one of us is more believable, is one of us should be trusted more than the other. Now, this manifests itself in what Ray begins to call baseball cards, just as, you know, a baseball player might have a stat sheet, you know, they're RBIs, their ERA, everything, that we would have a single card that we could look at and we could say, Kevin is really good at XYZ and Rob is really good at XYZ, more commonly, by the way, what we're bad at. And then, you know, that would sort of guide our power at at the hedge fund. Um, now, he's talked about this publicly uh, a lot. What the story of Paul McDowell and so many others at the firm shows you is that this entire system, this entire ranking system, functions and was rigged from the start to rank Ray Dalio at the top. And yeah, that that uh, that story is, it, it's funny because I, I, I have to say my emotions kind of waxed and waned in reading your book. You know, at some level, the, 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 the principle of, hey, you know, let's get at the truth. What is it? Uh, pain plus reflection equals growth. Um, you know, th- those principles kind of are you know, at some level, sensible and powerful. But then you say, you know, when, when they first implemented the baseball cards, you know, what happened was that Ray Dalio did not show up at the top in terms of believability. And McDowell was like, hey, that's, that shows the system's working, right? You know, it's uncovering pockets of, of believability that we wouldn't have seen. Um, but he didn't, he didn't interpret it that way. How, how did he interpret it and what, what happened? Well, Ray sees it as the opposite. He sees it as the system is not working because if the system thinks that someone else is ranked higher than Ray in an important category, the system must be broken because to Ray Dalio, he's obviously the best. Um, And he has the ability to point to what he would call a long-term investment track record and say, hey, I've done so well. I mean, literally one of his favorite phrases is, "If, if you're so smart, why aren't you rich? So it, what McDowell and others at the firm do is, is they build a fully self-reinforcing system um, where Ray's ratings are hardwired, um, virtually unable to be, um, to be dislodged from the top of the system. And uh, well, what you just described is in the introduction to the book. So fair enough to say it's sort of off to the races from there. Um, how, how well known was it in Bridgewater that Ray Dalio's rankings were kind of, I don't know what you said, rigged or, or kind of adjusted so that everything kind of was scored relative to him. Was that kind of widely known? The, uh, the effect of it was widely known. There's, it seems to me that no one inside Bridgewater ever believed in the principles, um, except for Ray Dalio, maybe himself. Um, the fact that it was rigged and how it was rigged is something that took me many years to uncover. Um, because there are plenty of examples of people at Bridgewater who tried to sort of speak truth to to Ray and to this idea of a system and were just, well, as the book goes into, it's sort of like, you know, trying to run up uh, an icy hill. You just keep sliding backwards. Um, it wasn't until relatively late, many years into my reporting into Bridgewater, that I was actually able to prove that this had been rigged at Ray's behest from the beginning. And well, of course it was. 
you know, once, once you know the story of Bridgewater, you realize, of course it was, but actually proving it is, um, is, you know, something else entirely. It seems like in reading the book, in some sense, you, you're almost kind of retelling the same story, but it's a, a different character that it's happening to. Um, and it, 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 feel, it felt to me like there was this tool of radical transparency was the notion of investigations or probes. So people would be performing badly or they would, there would be a particular uh, violation of a principle of transgression. And then there would be essentially an interrogation, a trial that uh, sometimes was led by Dalio, um, all, sometimes in front of the whole firm, always taped um, and even became kind of case studies. Um, can you maybe give an example of one of those trials? And I was thinking of the one of uh, Katina Stefanova, who is a central character in the book. She's uh, interesting in that she was considered to be one of you know, very close to Dalio, even even up to the point I think where she she left the firm. She thought there was a you know kind of a, a close relationship there. Um, so it, it would seem from the outside that she would be in a kind of an unusual target for trial. But even someone close to Dalio um, in your telling was uh, subject to that. So can you maybe explain how these interrogations or trials or probes worked uh, using her as an example? I would add one thing to that actually, which is that it's not even that even only people close to Ray were subject to the, the full brunt of this system, but actually it's a crucial central part of, of Ray's success is that he was able to pull, he was and is able to pull people in and then humiliate them because it sort of shows, um, you know, the closer you get to the sun, the, the hotter it is. Um, at, at Bridgewater, everything is and was taped. Um, he called it radical transparency. Um, so he had this huge repository of all these, what he would call case studies and, and probings. And again, if you think about it just on its face, it doesn't sound crazy, right? It doesn't sound, okay, so everything can be viewed by everyone at the firm and then we can learn from one another. And then if, you know, if we're having a disagreement, we can always pull back and we can say, um, hey, actually, Kevin, let's rewind to, you know, two weeks ago when we talked about this kind of feels like that might've been the moment where things went awry and we can learn from it. But of course, with Ray, nothing is, is ever exactly uh, as, as he describes it. Um, he begins to make these case studies um, in which he is probing, in his words, the badness of those around him. And one of them is, is Katina Stefanova, who is uh, you know, subject to a seminal case study at, at Bridgewater in which Ray is interrogating her for you know, the fact that she wasn't able to hire people as fast as he wanted. And she's sobbing, she is crying, and he is tearing into her. And Ray releases this tape internally, um, and then to job candidates of this woman sobbing. Um, and he calls it pain plus reflection equals progress, as you pointed out, one of his favorite principles. And he says, this is how we are here. How does this make you feel? But there's two crucial things that he doesn't say about that case study. One, the the edited tape is edited in a way that makes Katina seem like she's having an inappropriate emotional reaction. Ray seems like he's being kind to her, um, and Katina seems like she's losing it. So it, the lesson that Ray wants you to, to learn is you know, that Ray is just trying to help and that you're not letting him help you. And the other sort of mic drop moment how is do, that, How do you know that, Rob? I mean, is that have you seen the full unedited tape? I have spoken to lots of people who were there for the original probing, and lots of people who have uh, listened to the, the tape. 
Um, I've asked Bridgewater for these tapes. They, I've, I've asked them to release them publicly, frankly, so that everyone can see. Um, they, they won't do that. The other thing that Ray leaves out about his probing of Katina is that she was pregnant the whole time. So he's making a snuff film of him tearing into a pregnant employee. Um, and she's not just crying because, I mean, I would probably cry, honestly, if my billionaire boss were making such a over-the-top example of me. But she's literally pregnant the whole time. And he knows that. He knows that for years afterwards because she has the baby. And to me, this is such a great example of sort of how he warps um, the truth to suit his narrative, but also how almost nobody at Bridgewater rises to her defense in the years to come. Where were the people saying, Ray, you have to stop showing this tape? You have to, like, this is not right. Everyone knew she was pregnant, but nobody was, despite all of these so-called principles about trust and truth, nobody stood up and said, don't do this. Yeah, and that, that's when I started thinking about the more philosophical aspects of your book about, you know, telling truths and transparency. And I kind of came down on the side of as long as there is a power imbalance and the bigger the, the power imbalance, the more difficult it is for people to, quote unquote, speak the truth, right? Um, if you and I are kind of on the same level, we can give each other feedback and don't have to worry necessarily about repercussions. But if you've got a billionaire founder of a hedge fund and you've got other employees they're going to be circumspect about speaking the truth. And, and, and actually, you know, the, the system itself ought to recognize it. If the system is about understanding truth, it ought to recognize that if there's a power imbalance, people aren't going to be willing to speak the truth. And so it should be kind of adjusted in some sense to, to take account of that. If you, if you really were invested in a system that, that kind of brought out, uh, you know, that, that, that made an effort to bring out truth. Well, what I loved so much, honestly, about the book, which is there's a lot of fun moments for me, um, at least as a reader of, of the book. It's not just a, you know, a, a T-Rex stomping through, uh, stomping through the halls for, for 300 pages, um, is that there are such glimmers of hope. You know, there are so many moments where people, uh, they, they do do what you are suggesting. And the way that Ray is able to uh, sort of weaponize the principles and in its later years weaponize the celebrity that he has attained from the principles. It's honestly a lesson for any boss, but it's also a lesson for any employee of how you can, how you can sort of check your own values from your family, from your religion, from your community, from wherever you've learned, and you and you sort of find yourself adopting uh, this uh, this distorted view of reality from your employer, both because he's paying you a lot of money and because you've perhaps bought into this idea that that his philosophy is what made him rich and that you you need to match that philosophy or you yourself will never be successful. It's 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 a mind um, game for sure. Yeah. You have, they have this thing that I think you call or maybe internally called the MC cycle, the management committee cycle. And the notion was that, you know, you, or the, 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 the MC cycle was they would hire in quite senior level, often well-known investment professionals into a kind of a management committee level position and then say, okay, you know, you're at your first job is going to be something outside your area of expertise, oftentimes in a kind of a, a junior role. And the person would be a bit surprised, <laughs> but they go off and do it. And then, um, because it's, you know, outside what they were expecting to do, often outside their area of expertise, often they failed at it or didn't do as well. And then that, that would give, 
Bridgewater a chance to kind of probe or investigate um, that that person. And you know, there's a lot of kind of high level people went through that cycle and uh, and left afterwards. And that that's I guess that's why it's called the cycle. Bridgewater would say, "Hey, that's just testing to see whether these people can make it in our culture, whether they're suited to the way we do business here." How do you how do you react to to you know to that kind of description of the of the MC cycle? Well, if if that were true, then you know some of them would succeed, uh, and it seems uh, so remarkable that for so many decades, every single person that Ray brought in. He would find a reason to humiliate them um, and to show that they weren't quite his his equal. I would say you have to. This goes back to a principle, and Ray has a, a principle, uh, though he changes them all the time. So even calling them principles is as a fixed group is a bit of a misnomer. But he says that at Bridgewater, people have to be willing to humiliate themselves to get at the truth. So I would say that the MC cycle, which isn't my term by the way, it's other people's term, it is that principle in in action. Um, he's making sure that he humiliates you right at at the start. And I think that the sort of $150 billion question around Bridgewater is why so many people were willing to put up with this for sort of like a, a chance, just even as the slim chance at succeeding Ray Dalio uh, atop Bridgewater. Well, why do you think that is? I mean, what's your personal view on that? Every is time- well, money helps for sure. Um, but remember, you are joining a society, uh, as I should say, you are joining a, an organization that operates you know, off the grid um, with a charismatic founder, with a uh, strict dogma and harsh punishment to those uh, who, who cross the line. So you don't really have a choice uh, unless that choice is to walk out the door. There's a, a wonderful uh, documentary called The Vow, um, about an organization in upstate New York. And a part of the documentary, they they get into this woman who's who's locked in a room for two years and she um and she, she doesn't leave the room except to uh, use the restroom. And the mic drop moment at the end of one of those episodes is the room isn't locked. She has left herself in the room. And so because her family and everyone around her, she she's sort of been psychologically told not, uh, that she can't leave. And I think there's a lesson there in, in Bridgewater. It's not that anyone's been forced there. They're not shackled. You know, they get to go home at the end of the night, but the, the door isn't locked, but that doesn't mean that, um, that they can just leave. So it's a desire to prove that they can make it in this ultra competitive environment. It's a desire to eventually get Ray Dalio's approval. Exactly. And remember, he's, you've got your, your, billionaire founder is on TV and all these famous people are saying it's so fabulous that you're giving the, the way the secrets to your success. So if you're inside Bridgewater, you're saying, I have a chance to really learn something about my own instincts, my suboptimal instincts, and to turn myself into someone as successful as, as Ray Dalio. And if when you begin to question the whole system, which so many people do, um, you know, you, you just have this, this wall in front of you. You have people like Adam Grant, the Wharton psychologist, um, who was being paid by Ray to proselytize for him and the principles. So it's not it's not merely just questioning and saying, oh, I see it the other way. You, you sort of have to dump out an entire um, indoctrination system. And it's, it's, it's very difficult for people to this day. 
what do you think, you know, because as you say, I mean, Ray Dalio was a billionaire before the principles emerged or were birthed. What do you think his core skill is? Like, you know, kind of putting aside the principles, et cetera, um, because clearly he's, um, he's a skilled man. And um, I'm just kind of curious what, what you, you know, if you had to kind of evaluate him, what, what would you say it is or his core skills? He's a skilled storyteller is what he is. He has, he very early in his career um, figured out that if he told uh, wealthy families and institutions that his goal was not to necessarily make them the most money, but to protect them. Um, this is like sort of an obvious now hedge fund marketing pitch is like we protect against your downside. But that, that wasn't always obvious in the 80s and the 90s. And we should give Ray credit that regardless of what the truth of what Bridgewater was investing was actually like, that was the story he was telling. And it was incredibly effective. Many other firms have since tried basically the same approach and no one has been as good as Ray Dalio at, um, at marketing it. And then he becomes a skilled storyteller in telling the story of himself and, and the principles. Um, he's incredibly charming in a way. You know, I've met him in person a number of times because he will look you in the eyes and just spend hours telling you about the principles um, to the point where if he doesn't believe it himself, then he, you know, he deserves uh, the Academy Award um, for Best Actor. So he, if he believes it himself, which he is able to communicate so, um, so powerfully, it's sort of hard for you not to believe it because who are you to say this, these aren't the keys to his success? Yeah, I, I wanted to ask you that question. I'm glad you brought that up about him believing in the principles because when I read the book, you know, at, at certain times I'm like, okay, this is just a tool of control. Like, you know, in other words, you bring someone in, they make a transgression, you humiliate them, you tape it, it's played over and over again. That's a, that's not dedication to the truth. That's just um, using your power to show what I can do to someone. And it's, it's an example of, hey, if anyone else falls out of line, this is what's going to happen to you. That, that emotion came up a number of times to me, which actually, I don't I, I may be dating myself here, but if you read the Orwell book, Animal Farm, um, it's very, I kind of, I kept thinking about Animal Farm the whole time, you know, this, which is a kind of a satire of, of how, you know, the Communist Party and the Soviet Union worked. Um, well, it, it is at Bridgewater, you know, uh, uh, all animals are equal, but some are more equal than others. Um, I, I thought of that book a lot. Yeah, it, it, precisely. And it's a, uh, you know, it's a tool for psychological control. So it goes, my question is, does Ray see it that way, like deep down, do you think? Or does he actually think, no, this is, you know, that we're applying the principle of radical transparency in its purest form? Like, does, is he a believer or? Yeah, it, I, I've thought about this a lot. Um, and I, I did, you know, spend the better part of a number of years now really trying to put myself um, in his shoes um, because I don't think it's fair or interesting to write, you know, like a hit piece of a book. I'm, I'm trying to show you how this evolves over time, um, why people buy into it. They're not all evil. And also why Ray seems so stubborn about, uh, about not recognizing, uh, that the truth of what he's created. And I have to believe that he believes it because look, as the book has, there are many examples of people putting in writing, Ray, people think this is a cult. Ray, people are scared of you. And he responds to these emails. Um, 
But his, his response is, is always, you know, we should look in the principles for a guide. And if I knew a better way to help you, I would. So for me to believe that he is totally full of it and doesn't believe it, I think is to believe in like such a sociopathic villain that I, um, I can't believe that. Um, instead, I think that, I think this has gone a little out of control um, for Ray and he's, he's in too deep. He's made his whole identity the principles. And for him to admit now that actually it never worked the way he was describing, and in fact, for years, uh, it has been really the opposite of what he was describing, um, it would require him to, to do what he, um, what he claims to be so, so good at, but of course is so terrible at in, in practice, which is you know to hear the hard truth and to admit a mistake. And I actually find that a very relatable thing about Ray Dalio. I think we all find it hard to, to admit a mistake, but for him admitting a mistake, I mean, he would be admitting that, that the whole thing, the principles are a fraud. And I think we can all understand why he wouldn't want to do that. You know, that, you know, kind of admitting a mistake or admitting things aren't as they seem also applies in, in your book to the investment process, which, you know, as a former investment professional, that kind of shocked me the most because I, you know, our firm, tiny as it was, ran systematic strategies. We often described ourselves as doing very similar to what Bridgewater described. You know, there's a series of signals and you you pick, you know, you're trawling for data, you put that into a portfolio that's, you know, stable, that can produce uh, modest returns in most market environments, no big drawdowns. So Dalio and Bridgewater have described themselves as being kind of very data-driven, systematic. And, you know, in your book, you say, actually, that's not the case, that most of the people, uh, there's only a small, I think you call it the circle of trust, a small pe- a small group of people that are actually involved in the investment process. And it's much less um, intensive, systematic um, than, than it's described. And there's a quote I want to read out, which comes from your book that says, there was essentially no grand system, no artificial intelligence of any substance, no holy grail. There was just Dalio in person, over the phone, from his yacht, or a few weeks, many summers, from his villa in Spain, calling the shots. That's that's from your book. And I should say that you also include in the book a response from Bridgewater that says that notion that it's just Dahlia calling the shots is, is false. Um, they responded that way. Um, how did you uh, kind of uncover that aspect of the uh, of Bridgewater? Well, without, obviously I can't talk about like who I spoke to, but I can say I'm very comfortable with the, the conclusions that, that I drew. Um, remember that the story that Ray and Bridgewater tell about the investment process is basically this like magical mystery bus investment process where we have these rules that they say are quote, these are Ray's words, timeless and universal. Um, that he has these investment rules which have worked forever and will continue to work and they're secret and he won't show anyone. You know, as an investor, and so do most people on the street, that successful firms spend hundreds, if not hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars every year trying to find one small edge in the market that they know will not exist forever, exploit it for as long as possible, and then find the next one. So the idea that Ray Dalio has hundreds of timeless and universal rules um, that he has written down in a proverbial notebook is, to me, risible. And there's a reason why they aren't suing me, because... Um, they'd have to prove that I'm wrong, you know, and, and I'm, and I'm not the, so far as the idea of this investment system, 
it goes back to Ray being a great storyteller. There's something incredibly appealing about knowing that your money is safe because it's not about one man's instinct and ideas. You know, it's about this huge, um, uh, quantitative, really um, untouchable approach, which has produced so-called alpha, um, you know, for the better part of 50 years. What was so remarkable to me about, you're talking about particularly one chapter where I talk a lot about the investment process, is he also has to keep the story going about the investment process because he says that these systematized principles um, really stemmed from the approach that he took to build the investment process. So for him to admit that the investment process isn't as he claims, you know, it's not too far a walk to that the principles aren't as, as what he claims. Um, so that that began to explain for me why he is so protective of this narrative uh, that there are this secret set of of rules. Um, you, you mentioned the sort of the responses that his lawyers sent me that we did include in the book. I wanted to include his perspective. His perspective. I want readers to be able to to hear in his own words how he describes it. What was quite amusing to me is that in you know these months and years of letters, they they just kept saying that the, the system is 98% systematized or the trading is 98% or the risk is 98% systematized. The number was always 98, never 97, never 99. But the category seemed to change to the point where I was just reading their responses and just saying like, oh, this is just a game of Mad Libs um, at, at a certain point. Again, it wouldn't be hard. They could show their investors. They could show me. I've met with many successful investors um, who had complicated investment processes, um, and they have a way of explaining it that makes lucid sense. And I think it's quite telling that Bridgewater Still and Ray Dalio has not produced one single one of these so-called timeless and universal rules. They just haven't. Yeah, you you say it often boils down to a set of if then rules, which in the end um, felt a lot like trend following. You know, identifying a trend and following it. You you did say that there was always, or there there had been for quite a long time, a concern or a question mark around them in the sense that they're huge, right? They you know over a hundred billion at one stage, and um, that should leave a, a footprint in the market. Right for for you know absolutely should and you know one of the animating principles of our firm was hey we're going to keep it small because we you know we don't want people to see what we're doing right so size often is the enemy of success in investing right you get so big that people can see what you're doing they can imitate it and your edge goes away so there was there was a concern or an, an issue that hey we don't we don't see Bridgewater um, in the markets and there. At one stage, there was even an investigation by Harry Markopoulos, who was the guy who figured out that Madoff was um, a Ponzi scheme. And you say, you know, hey, Bridgewater's not a Ponzi scheme. Um, but what, I, what wasn't clear to me in the book is how that issue was was resolved. I mean, why don't we see a bigger footprint from Bridgewater in the markets? So I'm going to give you two answers. One is that that's a question for Bridgewater to answer. Um, the fact that the fact is that they quite enjoy the um, the the fact that people think that they're so large and mysterious. Um, I can tell you that according to my reporting, they spend a tremendous amount of money um, on what are essentially a series of proverbial interlocking tubes um, that send their trades through other names, um, and that the this costs 
an incredible amount in trading costs. Uh, someone told me as much as six percentage points uh, every year um, just to hide their trading because they want people to think that it's a secret system. I, the SEC looked into Harry Markopoulos' allegations to believe that Bridgewater is a Ponzi scheme. is such a conspiracy. You know, Bernie Madoff was running, had a separate floor where, what, seven or so people knew it was a Ponzi scheme. There would be hundreds of people at Bridgewater who knew and participated. You'd believe that the SEC went in there, saw, saw the trading system, and was fooled. Um, so that's why I say it's not a Ponzi scheme. Um, but that isn't to say that everything is as Ray or Bridgewater describes it. I mean, these so-called rules, um, in my findings, they, they come down to if Ray thinks of something, then it's a rule because he claims it's due to his study of history over many decades. Um, now, I think there's another word for that, and that's just called discretionary macro trading. Um, <laughs> right. And I wouldn't Which call that a, a rule. Which is a fine, would... legitimate um, you know, uh, strategy that many people follow. You know, I, I, I'll, I'll maybe we'll kind of wrap up the questions here. Um, so I know your time is is kind of running out. But w one thing that I thought about in, in the book is external investors kicking the tires, right? Because I've been through that process many times with sophisticated institutional investors. They they really want to know the process, right? Um, not the secret rules, but they they want to get a lot of transparency. You know, I've sat down on you know. With, for hours and gone through a lot of detail with some of the same people that invested with Bridgewater. And another thing that comes up a lot in these due diligence sessions is, hey, Ray, um, or hey, Kevin, you know, how much time are you spending on the investment process versus, you know, running the firm? And, you know, even running a tiny firm of 20 people, I would get that question sometime. You know, you're, you're getting diluted. You know, you're managing the business, not the investment process. So you've got this situation at Bridgewater where, there's thousands of people working there. You know, did those issues not come up or was it just the past returns were so good that people were willing to put all that aside? I will, uh, I will answer you by pointing you that actually Ray in the book, um, he talks to investors fairly often. Um, and what does he talk to them about? He talks to them about the principles. Uh, the, when investors come into Bridgewater, they, they get this, this pseudo philosophy from him. Um, and, and that's quite appealing to, to many of them. I actually, after the book came out, I heard from a, a major Bridgewater investor who was asking me questions about the trading. Um, and I said, well, why don't you ask them? Uh, and he was like, oh, like our, well, they have a wonderful client services team, but we talked to them about you know our their high-level view on what to do with our portfolio. And I said, well, why don't you ask them what they're doing with your money that you've given them to invest? I'm not saying that this that this organization should redeem by any stretch. I was just saying, you're the client. It's your money. You you can ask. There are a lot of very smart um, investors in Bridgewater and other funds. Um, but I will say that as someone who covers this space, um, there is a chasm often between the sophistication of the end investor, the investment officer at a pension fund, um, or even a sovereign wealth fund, um, and the sophistication of the of the manager, and um, I think for many years, many investors of Bridgewater were sort of just happy to say that they had money with the world's biggest hedge fund, and to say, well, it must be safe because it's um, the biggest. I, I share a bit of your befuddlement um, because, believe me, if I had an hour with the Bridgewater Investment Committee, I would have no trouble asking a lot of questions, learning a lot of things, 
And there are some very large investors who have the ability to ask for that hour and to my knowledge have not. Well, um, I appreciate that, uh, Rob. And I, you know, I appreciate the, the book and the, um, you know, just the, the time and the effort and the dedication to, you know, um, doing your investigation I and mean, journalism is extremely important, especially now, you know, the, the book is called the fund and I think it's a, it's, it's a good Christmas read, right? It's, it's got great uh, anecdotes and stories and, and, and also some deeper points if you want to, if you want to go there. So, uh, Rob, thanks so much for, for joining the show. We wish you um, all the best. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much, Rob and Kevin, for an absolutely fascinating look into the world's largest hedge fund and, of course, its founder. Of course, I can't comment on any of the findings that Rob has made and written about, but there's one thing that strikes me and that I'm left with having heard this conversation. And it's a very simple question, namely... If this was all made up by Rob, why hasn't Bridgewater followed through with a lawsuit against him? Well, that's it for today. Make sure you go and follow Rob's work and Kevin's work, as well as getting a copy of their books so that you can judge it yourself. And because, as you can tell from today's conversation, some of these ideas and topics may not be discussed enough in mainstream media. From Kevin and me, thanks ever so much for listening. We look forward to being back with you on the next episode of the Ideas Lab. And in the meantime, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes. It only takes a minute and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you next time on Top Traders Unplugged.